Hi, and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. Sometimes not so long ago. This time is weird, because yep. it's definitely long ago, but it's also right now. Yeah, uncomfortably two times at once. <laughs> yeah, well, and really it's kind of approaching a, a third or fourth or fifth or sixth time in history however many times we have to go through this whole thing <laughs> boy do we have any updates i got nada i got nada as well all right cool so this topic comes from the week of june 15th to june 21st and my topic is on june 19th of 1865 when union soldiers led by major general gordon granger landed at galveston Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free, otherwise known as Juneteenth. Woohoo! Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the end of slavery in the United States, even though this event happens two and a half years after the emancipation of slaves. Oopsies. Yeah, the Lincoln Address originally took place in September of. Uh, 1862 and then it was officially done on like a presidential like government scale mm -hmm. on january 1st of 16 uh, or of 1863 mm -hmm. and then it took all the way until 1865 before anyone told the south yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. no one can see the face i'm making but it it's 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 a face. <laughs> yep. So the Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on Texans due to the minimal number of Union troops that enforced the executive order. Some things will never change. However, with the surrender of General Lee in April of 1865 the and the arrival of General Granger's regiment, the forces were finally strong enough to influence and overcome the resistance. Good. Very good. So one of the first orders of business was to read to the people of Texas General Order Number 3, which began most significantly with, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. It, it was... Already kind of rocky. Um, I didn't realize how rocky it was. And it wasn't just like, fist down, here's freedom. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you're no longer slaves, you have to pay these people. Yeah. It's kind of weird. And, uh, there, and like, there's a whole issue about like, what they were paid or like, how that whole shindig worked out or like, you know, whether or not anyone actually told the slaves even after, like, the owners knew and all that stuff. Which is why Lincoln sent actual yeah. army regiments around to right. decree in public to people so that yeah. there is a better chance of slaves hearing this. Hopefully, yeah. 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 There was a whole shenanigans with all of that where, like... Masters would try and, like, find as many loopholes, essentially, as they could. Yeah, I mean, servitude of some degree has uh, reared its ugly head for a very long time. Yes. In the early years of celebrating Juneteenth, there wasn't that much inf 
interest outside of the African-American community in participating in Juneteenth celebrations. And like we see for a lot of things, <coughs> all lives matter. Um, <laughs> there's been there, there was like public protesting about people trying to celebrate Juneteenth and kicking them out of public places and making it so that they had to celebrate their known freedom in backwoods and places where white people essentially didn't have to see it. Yep. Yeah. It's not a good look, guys. Yep. So (laughs) it wasn't until African Americans started becoming landowners that they were able to start celebrating publicly. Mm -hmm. The most prominent was uh, a documented land purchase in the name of Juneteenth that was organized by Reverend Jack Yates. The fundraising effort yielded $1,000, which led to the purchase of a plot of land known as Emancipation Park in Houston, Texas. Oh, that's really nice. Yep. And a bunch of small purchases like that started happening in communities that did celebrate Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just as the the black community were able to get more money and stop being slaves. Yeah. You know, was able to start actually economically rallying around their own. Yeah. So once that started happening, the... Juneteenth celebration started becoming more prominent. And remember, this is in Texas. This yeah, is in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Juneteenth started in Texas and wasn't recognized anywhere else for a long time. Yeah. So unfortunately, economic and political forces led to decline in Juneteenth celebrations. Um, from 1890 to 1908, Texas and all former Confederate states passed new constitutions and amendments that effectively effectively disenfranchised black people. Yep. Trying to further exclude them from voting and other, you know, normal processes of government. Yep. <clears throat> so Juneteenth became a little hard to swallow at that point when they were essentially told that they didn't have a voice again. Yep. <laughs> and that there weren't really people who deserved to have a voice. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, this also came along with more Jim Crow laws and mm-hmm. stuff like that, oh, kind yeah. of, or suppressing them. Um, there was also a notion between upward moving uh, blacks that they shouldn't celebrate Juneteenth because it was a reminder of slavery, mm-hmm. and they wanted to distance themselves from their ancestors as hard as they could because yeah. they wanted yep. to be free people immediately. Yeah, and kind of holding on to their legacy was they, they they viewed it as kind of shameful that you know we're upstanding wealthy people now but you know only a generation ago we were slaves they kind of yeah. wanted to distance themselves from that yeah. so that also hurt the movement a little bit that wasn't necessarily them trying to distance themselves from their culture but trying to assimilate better into white culture is yeah. essentially what that was yeah kind of like how like america's the melting pot of the u.s kind of thing where like people come here and like try to assimilate whereas it really should be i don't know where i heard, saw this metaphor before or when i when i saw this but someone was saying that it should be more like a salad bowl than a melting pot bunch of individual pieces and all you, together yeah and you celebrate the indiv- individual pieces for what they are and like you know the lettuce and the tomatoes and the carrots and everything all make a really good salad and them coming together is what makes it so good. But they're not one homogenous thing. Exactly. They're not yeah. making everything the same. Yep. And let's be real. If we were homo- if we were to homogenize as humans, we'd be brown, not white. Yeah, right? <laughs> that, that, 
that would be yeah. what a modernized human <laughs> society w- would be like. And yep. honestly, that's probably what our future is going to eventually be. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it was also tough to celebrate uh, Juneteenth, even as it spread to different places because of uh, blacks getting more right to schools and mm-hmm. education. And they were able to spend more time educating themselves, which was absolutely necessary. And just a lot of kind of heritage type stuff started taking a back seat because mm-hmm. with their roots in slavery, their roots were inherently in uneducated like society. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were trying to break from that and become part of educated society as quick as, le- as, quick as they could. Yep. So that was another tough part and then uh, once they started building up momentum for Juneteenth again now that people were starting to be educated and able to push away some of that needing to homogenize with society the Great Depression happens womp womp so then everyone needed to work and everyone needed to find as much work as they could and the Great Depression as it did with a lot of people forced people into jobs that they might not have liked but very specifically the black community was forced back to farming. Yep. And hard labor and uh, very similar to what they had gone through before forcibly. Mm -hmm. So again, it was kind of a blow to feeling like they were free. And uh, we kind of just keep seeing this cycle of freedom pops up and then freedom uh, goes away. Not necessarily always because of racial inequality, but because of how, different systemic pressures of society do have unintended or intended racial bias towards communities that maybe couldn't get onto their feet as quickly as others. Mm -hmm. And then in the, so after the great depression, you know, there was world war and when they finally started getting back momentum for Juneteenth, it it was around the fifties and sixties, which is Mm -hmm. when we start the civil rights movement again. Mm hmm. And this was actually kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, yeah. I didn't really think about it this way before, but the civil rights movement, while it should have been bringing this kind of stuff to light and maybe people rallying around Juneteenth, it also hurt Juneteenth a little bit because people were really feeling the pain of oppression and slavery again. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't really feel happy about celebrating emancipation when they felt at that specific moment that maybe they were never really emancipated. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So during the civil rights movement, the Juneteenth died down again and wasn't celebrated all too heavily. And it wasn't until the 1970s when the Texas legislature ended up declaring Juneteenth a holiday of significance, particularly to the blacks of Texas. Good. So they were the first people to do that. And they were the first state to do that and establish them as a state holiday under legislation. It was officially passed in 1979, and the modern holiday was enacted on January 1st of 1980. And it's a partial staffing holiday, which means in Texas, unless you're a government agency, that people are encouraged to let... um, let people stay home on that day. It's not a federal holiday, mm-hmm. so it's not like you can't have people come in for work. Yeah. But it is heavily encouraged in Texas to let people take that day off. That's good. Yeah. Everybody or just black employees? It just says reduce staff. Hmm. Okay. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's being treated as a holiday. Yeah. Kind of like most states, there's like floating holidays that like yeah, sometimes yeah. particular states celebrate. Like us, we have Patriot's Day yep. in Massachusetts, yep. which no one else has. Yep. So that's one that like it's not a federal holiday. Employers don't have to give it off, but most people in the state will. Yep. Harvard doesn't, though. Interesting, because they're right there. Yes, but also Harvard gives us like two full weeks at Christmas yeah, as that's part true. of our vacation. <laughs> Harvard is very lenient with their vacation policies. Yes, I love it. <laughs> it's wonderful. So recently, um, companies have been starting to take Juneteenth as a partial staffing or company holiday, um, such as Twitter, the NFL, and Nike all this year announced that Juneteenth will be partial holidays. Oh, okay. So while states haven't done it, uh, companies are starting to do it, which is great. That's good. Yeah. I would imagine that this is even as recently as the last few months so probably probably yeah. especially considering the nfl <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. so modern observances are primarily like local celebrations and include traditions like reading the emancipation proclamation and singing uh like songs and reading works by prominent uh black writers mm -hmm. and uh, there's also lots of like rodeos and street fairs and cookouts and different like parties and reenactments and even like Miss Juneteenth contests. Oh, neat. Which I found like really interesting just because I literally, as I was doing these notes, saw a thing from Muhammad Ali where he was talking about how he grew up and he was always questioning why everything is white. And like just from paintings to art to shows and just every everything he was talking to his about his mom and talking to his mom about why everything's white. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things he mentioned was that Miss America, white Miss Universe, white. And it's like there's plenty of beautiful black women. Like mm -hmm. why? Why are all of these top contests white? So I thought it was kind of interesting seeing that they that they do a Juneteenth, like a Miss Juneteenth mm -hmm. thing. So, yeah, that's that's, that's kind neat. of night. Yeah. So Juneteenth has its own flag, which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so cool. it's a red, white, and blue flag. Okay. So it's, you know, still saying like, hey, we're here, we're American. Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of a big part of it. Um, it has a white star. Basically, it's blue on the top of the flag and then red in kind of like a little bit of like a arc or circle, almost like a horizon line. Cool. Okay. And then there's a white star right in the middle, like where that horizon line is. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to represent like Texas because like that's where Juneteenth started. Yep. And then there's like a kind of like an explosion looking thing around the star, like a uh -huh. like a many pointed star around the traditional five point star. Uh -huh. And that's supposed to be like the rise of new freedoms oh, kind neat. of a thing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's kind of neat. I didn't realize that it had a flag at all. Yeah, that's cool. So... In the spirit of Juneteenth, instead of trying to continue to talk about something that I definitely don't know too much about, and, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe Kylie and I aren't the best voices right now for yes. this yeah. whole thing, um, I decided to stick with the spirit of Juneteenth, and since they they mentioned that the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation is a tradition, and reading from Black artists are part of the tradition... I printed out a transcript of the Emancipation Proclamation, and I printed out the transcript of, let me find the name of it. 
It's a few pages down. Get ready for a long one, guys. Okay, so when he, as he looks for that, I'm going to explain something. As he goes, okay, I'm ready. I just need to print my 22 pages. I thought he was kidding. It's 22 pages. He was not. I'm not kidding. And also, this kind of goes along with what we were talking about in our 50th episode about like stuff that like I kind of wanted to use this as a platform for. And one of the things was like if something comes up that involves doing some sort of art, I kind of wanted to not necessarily like maybe briefly talk about that. Kind of like we did with like the Nefarious Nodule episode where Kylie talked a little bit about Choose Your Own Adventures and then we like played a game. So I think this would be a good spot to embrace what we wanted to or at least what I wanted to do with the podcast at some point. Um, so I found a book called The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Yep. And, uh, it's in the public domain and I was looking through the chapters trying to find a good one. And the first two chapters felt really good for this topic because they're directly talking about emancipation and also felt good for just kind of the current times. Yeah. The whole, I recommend reading the whole book though. I've, I've read the, the, that one and it's, it's. It's very good. Yeah, and it's kind of neat because every uh, chapter starts off with like a, a stanza of, um, I I think they're all called sorrow songs, mm-hmm. um, but I I don't I don't know if every single one from the start of the chapter is a sorrow song. But there's there's a a song from um, black culture. Yeah, at the beginning of each chapter. All right, so uh, buckle in because we're doing a I guess in the spirit of executive powers a fireside chat today. <laughs> So, a transcription by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation from January 1st of 1863, where he's on the 22nd day of September in the year of our Lord, 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following to wit, that on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of the state the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States shall be thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedoms of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedoms." I found that interesting. Yeah. No repressing them in any efforts that they make towards their actual freedom. Huh. Hmm. How's Think that about that. Out? Yeah. That the executive will on the first day of January, aforesaid by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States, and the fact that any state or people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented by the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto at elections, wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such state shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now, therefore I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, do on this first day of January in the year of our Lord 1863, and in accordance with my purpose to do so... And in accordance with my purpose, so to do publicly proclaim the full period of 100 days from 
from the day first above mentioned, order and designated as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are this day in rebellion against the United States, the following to wit. Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Plaquemines, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, St. James Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Laforche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia, and also the counties of Berkeley, Accomack, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Prince Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. For reference, those are areas that had northern force already at this Mm -hmm. point and had already freed slaves. This wasn't saying that they were excluded from freeing slaves. It was all of the counties which have already done so. Yeah. So he was basically just kind of saying to everybody, these are all the people who followed our instruction. Yeah. The rest of you, this is for you. Yeah. Yep. Which is pretty sassy for a proclamation, if you ask me. (laughs) And by virtue of the power and the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within the designated states and part of states are and henceforward shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free, to abstain from all violence unless necessary in self-defense, and I recommend to them that, in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed services of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And act upon this act sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind in the gracious favor of Almighty God. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington, this first day of January, in year of our Lord, 1863, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 87th, by the President, Abraham Lincoln, with William H. Seward as Secretary of State. Nice. So if anyone's never heard the Emancipation Proclamation, there it is. Now you have, and you have no excuse. I honestly don't think I've ever actually read it. I know I've read it, but I know that, like, when I read it, I don't think I fully appreciated, like, the history behind I it. I feel like in school, we were just told it existed when it happened, and yeah. nothing further than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember we we read it in class, but, like, you know, I was in, like, sixth or seventh grade, and it was, like, one in one ear, out the other, because as a, you know, white kid growing up in rural Maine, it had very little impact on, you know my life and like you know children pretty self-centered let's be honest (laughs) yeah i mean also like i i'm from mass and mass is traditionally viewed as more progressive but i honestly don't think we covered any of this in any great import (laughs) so a lot of these things were just kind of mentions as footnotes so uh school systems get your get your act together yeah i schools could do much better in terms of 
really educating kids about just all of it. Like so much gets skipped. And like, I understand that like, you know, you have a finite amount of time in which to educate kids, but there are some things that you could probably skip that are currently covered. Yeah, you don't always have to talk about the good things America did and the bad things every other country has done. You could kind of intersperse that every once in a while with good things yeah. other countries yeah. have done and bad things that we've done. Yeah, I, I feel like the his, historical education that kids receive is very much like, oh, look at all the bad things that, you know, like Germany did and look at all the bad things that like Russia did and like all of these other places without really, really paying attention to the bad stuff that we did to our own people so you know we call that propaganda well <laughs> our schools have been propaganda machines anyway you need to finish reading your next your what like <clears throat> remaining 20 pages well you're not enjoying the story no i am but i mean i would like to end this recording before midnight <laughs> So the next part that I'm going to read is, as I mentioned before, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, for reference, uh, the N-word gets said here a lot, and I'm not going to say it. I control found and replaced uh, that with the word black or blacks. Um, I've left in references where it says African-American because I yeah. feel like that was probably intentional in speaking to blacks in America at that point. Yeah. So African-American will be in here. I'm getting rid of the N-word. It's not my word. Words have Ooh. power. Ooh, yeah. So. Yeah. So just be prepared for that. If you want to read the thing in its original writing, yep. uh, please feel free to do so. That's kind of the spirit of Juneteenth. So please go read more of this. I'm only reading you the first two chapters. Yep. And like I mentioned, it starts with a song. I'll just be reading it. So it starts with poetry. What? You don't want to try and sing a song you've never heard before? I can't read sheet music. Oh, so wait, I, really? Yes. So huh. I wouldn't okay. know where to begin. So I even deleted the sheet music out of this. How did you play the trombone? I was just good at it. Huh. <laughs> that was, okay. That was, you know, some people pick up guitars and kind of learn them and no that's one questions true. that. Yep, that's true. Alrighty. I learned something new about my fiance. Yeah, uh, can't read sheet music, never could. Uh, my music teacher always would very aggressively sit me down and say, why, oh, <laughs> why, God, are you, my best trombonist, not reading your sheet music and not going to practice? <laughs> Way to go, dummy. <laughs> yep. Anyways, enough of a derailment for the kind of serious topic we're on. So it starts off with the poem, um, by Arthur Simons. It was called Of Our Spiritual Strivings. O water, voice of my heart, crying in the sand, all night long crying with a mournful cry. As I lie and listen and cannot understand the voice of my heart in my side or the voice of the sea, O water, crying for the rest, is it I? Is it I? All night long the water is crying to me. Unresting water, there shall never be rest. Till the last moon droop, and the last tide fall, and the fire of the end begin to burn in the west, and the heart shall be weary and wonder and cry like the sea. All life long, crying without avail, as the water all night long is crying to me. And then his first, this is when W.E.B. -E du Bois picks up. Between me and the other world, there is an ever unasked question. 
Unasked by some, though feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it, all nevertheless flutter round it. They approach me in half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem, they say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem, I answer a seldom word. And yet, being a problem is a strange experience, peculiar even for one who has never been anything else, save perhaps in babyhood and in Europe. It is in the early days of rollicking boyhood that the relevation first bursts upon me, all in a day, as it were. I remember well when the shadows swept across me. I was a little thing, away up in the hills of New England, where the dark Housatonic winds between Hoosac and Togonic to the sea. In a wee wooden schoolhouse, something put it in the boys' and girls' heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards, ten cents a package, and exchange them. The exchange was merry till one girl, a tall newcomer, refused my card, refused it peremptorily with a glance. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like mayhap in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil, to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. That sky was bluest when I could beat my mates at examination time, or beat them in a foot race, or even beat their stringy heads. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I laughed at that too when I first read it. Alas, with the years all this fine contempt began to fade, for the words I longed for and all their dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. But they should not keep these prizes, I said. Some, all, I would wrest from them. Just how I would do it, I could never decide. By reading law by healing the sick, by telling the wonderful tales that swam in my head. Some way. With other black boys, the strife was not so fiercely sunny. Their youth shrunk into tasteless sycophancy, or into silent hatred of the pale world about them, and mocking distrust of everything white, or wasted itself in a bitter cry. Why did God make me an outcast, and a stranger in my own house? The shades of the prison house closed round about us all. Walls straight and stubborn to the whitest, but relentless narrow, tall, and unscalable to sons of night who must plod darkly on resignation, or beat unavailing palms against the stone, or steadily, half-hopelessly, watch the streak of blue above. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the black is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil, and gifted the second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the relevation of the other world. It is a peculiar it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness as an American, a black, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings. Two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps him from being torn asunder. The history of the American black is the history of this strife. This longing to attain self-conscious manhood, 
to merge his double self onto a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the old selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his black soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that black blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both black and an American. Without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. This, then, is the end of his striving, to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture, to escape both death and isolation, to husband and use his best powers and his latent genius. These powers of body and mind have in the past been strangely wasted, dispersed, or forgotten. The shadow of a mighty black past flits through the tale of Ethiopia the shadowy and of Egypt the sphinx. Through history, the powers of single black men flash here and there like falling stars and die sometimes before the world has rightly gauged their brightness. Here in America, in the few days since emancipation, the black man's turning hither and thither in hesitant and doubtful striving has often made his very strength to lose effectiveness, to seem like absence of power, like weakness. And yet it is not weakness. It is the contradiction of double aims, the double aim struggle of the black artisan, on the one hand, to escape white contempt for a nation of mere hewers of wood and drawers of water, and on the other hand, to plow and nail and dig for a poverty-stricken horde, could only result in making him a poor craftsman, for he had but half a heart in either cause. By the poverty and ignorance of his people, the black minister or doctor was tempted toward quackery or demagogy, and by the criticism of the other world, toward ideals that made him ashamed of his lowly tasks. The would-be black savant was confronted by the paradox that the knowledge of his people needed was twice-told tale to his white neighbors, while the knowledge which would teach the whole white world was Greek to his own flesh and blood. The innate love of harmony and beauty that set the ruder souls of his people a-dancing, a-singing, raised but confusion and doubt in the soul of the black artist. For the beauty revealed to him was the sole beauty of a race which his larger audience despised, and he could not articulate the message of another people. This waste of double aims, this seeking to satisfy two unreconciled ideals, has wrought sad havoc with the courage and faith and deeds of ten thousand thousand people, has sent them often wooing false gods and invoking false means of salvation, and at times has even seemed about to make them ashamed of themselves. Away back in the days of bondage, they thought to see in one divine event the end of all doubt and disappointment. Fewer men ever worshipped freedom with half such unquestioning faith as did the American black for two centuries. To him, so far as he thought and dreamed, slavery was indeed the sum of all villainies, the cause of all sorrow, the root of all prejudice. Emancipation was the key to a promised land of sweeter beauty than ever stretched before the eyes of wearied Israelites. In song and exhortation swelled one refrain, Liberty, in his tears and curses the God he implored had freedom in his right hand. At last it came, suddenly, fearfully, like a dream. With one wild carnival of blood and passion came the message of his own plaintive cadences. Shout, O children, shout you are free, for God has bought you liberty. Years have passed away since then, 10, 20, 40, 40 years of national life. 40 years of renewal and development, and yet the swarthy specter sits in a custom seat at the nation's feast, 
In vain do we cry to this our vastest social problem. Take any shape but that, and firm nerves shall never tremble. The nation has not yet found peace from its sins. The freed man has not found in freedom his promised land. Whatever of good may have come in these years of change, the shadow of deep disappointment rests upon the black people. A disappointment all the bitter because the unattained ideal was unbound save by the simple ignorance of lowly people. The first decade was merely a prolongation of the vain search for freedom, the boon that seemed ever barely to elude their grasp, like a tantalizing will-o'-the-wisp maddening and misleading the headless host. The holocaust of war, the terrors of the Ku Klux Klan, the lies of the carpetbaggers, and the disorganization of industry, and the contradicting advice of friends and foes left the bewildered serf with no new watchword beyond the old cry for freedom. As the time flew, however, he began to grasp a new idea. The ideal of liberty demanded for its attainment powerful means, and these the 15th Amendment gave him. The ballot, which before he had looked upon as a visible sign of freedom, he now regarded as the chief means of gaining and perfecting the liberty with which war had partially endowed him. And why not? Had not votes made war in emancipation millions? Had not votes enfranchised the freedmen? Was anything impossible to a power that had done all of this? A million black men started with renewed zeal to vote themselves into the kingdom. So the decade flew away, and the revolution of 1876 came and left the half-free serf weary, wondering, and still inspired. Slowly but steadily, in the following years, a new vision began gradually to replace the dream of political power, a powerful movement, the rise of another ideal to guide the unguided, another pillar of fire by night after a clouded day. It was the ideal of book learning, the curiosity born of compulsory ignorance, to know and test the power of the cabalistic letters of the white man, the longing to know. Here at last seemed to have been discovered the mountain path to Canaan, longer than the highway of emancipation and law, steep and rugged, but straight, leading to heights high enough to overlook life. Upon the new path, the advance guard toiled, slowly, heavily, doggedly. Only those who have watched and guided the faltering feet, the misty minds, the dull understandings of the dark pupils of these schools know how faithfully, how piteously, this people strove to learn. It was weary work. The cold statistician wrote down the inches of progress here and there, noted also where here and there a foot had slipped or someone had fallen. To the tired climbers, the horizon was ever dark. The mists were often cold. The Canaan was always dim and far away. If, however, the vistas disclosed as yet no goal, no resting place, but little but flattery and criticism, the journey at least gave leisure for reflection and self-examination. It changed the child of emancipation to the youth with dawning self-consciousness, self-realization, and self-respect. In those somber forests of his striving, his own soul rose before him, and he saw himself, darkly as through a veil. And yet he saw himself some faint revelation of his power, of his mission. He began to have dim feeling that, to attain his place in the world, he must be himself, and not another. For the first time, he sought to analyze the burden he bore on his back, that dead weight of social degradation partially masked behind a half-named black problem. He felt his poverty without a cent, without a home, without lands, tools, or savings. 
he had entered into a competition with rich, landed, skilled neighbors. To be a poor man is hard, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardships. He felt the weight of his ignorance, not simply of letters, but of life, of business, of the humanities. The accumulated sloth and shirking of awkwardness and decades and centuries shackled his hands and feet. Nor was his burden all poverty and ignorance. The red stain of bastardy, which two centuries of systemic legal defilement of black women had stamped on his race, meant not only the loss of ancient African chastity, but also the hereditary weight of a mass of corruption from white adulterers, threatening almost the obliteration of the black home. A people thus handicapped ought not to be asked to, to race with the world, but rather allowed to give all its time and thought to its own social problems. But alas, while sociologists gleefully count his bastards and his prostitutes, the very soul of the toiling, sweating black man is darkened by the shadow of vast despair. Men call the shadow prejudice, and learnedly explain it as the natural defense of culture against barbarism, learning against ignorance, purity against crime, the higher against the lower races. To which the black cries amen, and swears that to so much of this strange prejudice as is founded on just homage to civilization, culture, righteousness, and progress, he humbly bows and meekly does obeisance. But before that nameless prejudice that leaps beyond all of this stands helpless, dismayed, and well-nigh speechless, before that personal disrespect and mockery, the ridicule and systemic humiliation, the distortion of fact and wanton license of fancy, the cynical ignoring of the better and the boisterous welcoming of the worse, the all-pervading desire to incalculate disdain for everything black, from Toussaint to the devil. Before this, there rises a sickening despair that would disarm and discourage any nation save the black host from whom discouragement is an unwritten word. But the facing of so vast a prejudice could not but bring the inevitable self-questioning, self-disparagement, and lowering of ideals, which ever accompany repression and breed in an atmosphere of contempt and hate. Whisperings importance came home upon the four winds. Lo, we are diseased and dying, cried in the dark host. We cannot write, our voting is vain. What need of education, since we must always cook and serve? And the nation echoed and enforced this self-criticism, saying, Be content to be servants and nothing more. We need of higher culture for half-men. Away with the black man's ballot, by force or fraud, and behold the suicide of a race. Nevertheless, out of the evil came something good. The more careful adjustment of education to real life, the clearer perception of the black social responsibilities, and the sobering realization of the meaning of progress. So dawned the time of sturm and drang. Storm and stress today rocks our little boat on the mad waters of the world sea. There is within and without the sound of conflict, the burning of body and rending of soul. Inspiration strives without a doubt, and faith with vain questionings. The bright ideals of the past, physical freedom, political power, the training of brains and the training of hands. All these in turn have waxed and waned, until even the last grows dim and overcast. Are they all wrong? All false? No, not that. But each alone was oversimple and incomplete. The dreams of a credulous race childhood, or the fond imaginings of the other world which does not know and does not want to know our power. To be really true, all these ideas must be melted and welded into one, 
The training of the schools we need today more than ever. The training of deft hands, quick eyes, and ears above all the broader, deeper, higher culture of the gifted minds and pure hearts. The power of the ballot we need in sheer self-defense. Else, what shall save us from a second slavery? Freedom too, the long sought, we still seek. The freedom of life and limb, the freedom to work and think, the freedom to love and aspire. Work, culture, liberty, all these we need. Not singly, but together. Not successively, but together. Each growing and aiding and all striving toward the vaster ideal that swims before the black people. The ideal of human brotherhood, gained through the unifying ideal of race. The ideal of fostering and developing the traits and talents of the black, not in opposition to or in contempt for other races, but rather in large conformity to the greater ideals of the American Republic. In order that someday on American soil, two world races may give to each other those characteristics in order that someday on American soil, two world races may give each to each those characteristics both so sadly lack. We, the darker ones, come out now not altogether empty-handed. There are today no truer exponents of the pure human spirit of the Declaration of Independence than the American blacks. There is no true American music but the wild, sweet melodies of the black slave. The American fairy tales and folklore are Indian and African, and, all in all, we black men seem the sole oasis of simple faith and reverence in a dusty desert of dollars and smartness. Will America be poorer if she replaced her brutal, dystopic blundering with light-hearted but determined black humility? Her coarse and cruel wit with loving, jovial good humor? Or her vulgar music with the soul of the sorrow songs? Merely a concrete test of the underlying principles of the great republic is the black problem, and the spiritual striving of the freedmen's sons is the travail of souls whose burden is almost beyond the measure of their strength, but who bear it in name of a historic race, in the name of this land of their father's fathers, and in the name of human opportunity. And now what I have briefly sketched in large outline, let me on the coming pages tell again, in many ways, with loving emphasis and deeper detail, to the striving in the souls of black folk. That's the first chapter. Yeah, I think I'm going to cut it there. Um, I definitely recommend at least reading the second chapter because it deals with the problem of America and its color line. That's specifically the wording that it uses. Yeah. Um, the I'll read the last paragraph uh, just because I found it kind of powerful. Um, I have seen land right and merry with the sun, where children sing and rolling hills lie like passioned women wanton with harvest, and there in the king's highways sat and sits a figure veiled and bowed, by which the traveler's footsteps hasten as they go. On the tainted air broods fear. Three centuries thought has been the raising and unveiling of that bowed human heart, 
and now below, a century new for the duty and the deed, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Yep. Okie doke. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to me read. I know I'm not the best voice around. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I feel like this kind of thing is just, it, it's very important to be aware and to, you know, like recognize and interact with voices of color. And that's kind of what the whole Black Lives Matter and Juneteenth in and of itself is all about, is recognizing and celebrating. Yeah, I mean, even in voices. that section that I read, there was a part where um, they were talking about people wanting to just kind of blindly hate whites yeah. for suppressing them. And they mentioned that, no, we can't do this. We don't want to... We don't want to hate another race. That's what they did to us. Yeah. We 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 want to be part of your group, essentially, yeah. is what it, I forget what paragraph it was saying, but there there was definitely one spot that I just read that was very much the mission statement of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Is they, they just want to be equivalent. They want freedoms. The Emancipation Proclamation not necessarily tricked them, but kind of was a very small step in moving forward. Yeah. I'll kind kind of like a not a false hope per se, but like it made people you know expect more than they got. Yeah. And I mean it the the major thing that it did at least from WEB Du Bois mm -hmm. um as far as I can tell from reading this is the Emancipation Proclamation gave them the ability to become equal, mm -hmm. but it didn't give the rest of America the want to let them be equal. Right. And it, it gave them the ability to get there, but they were going to have to fight for it. Yeah. And that's also kind of, now that I'm thinking about it, what they talked about in the Emancipation Proclamation is that the... These people who are slaves, who are oppressed, shall have every right to resist and secure their freedoms. Yep. So yep. kind of a, that's a probably a very big and relevant point for today is yes. the Emancipation Proclamation gave anyone who felt uh, oppressed and enslaved the ability to defend their freedom. Yep. So anyways, let's move on to the call to action. We. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find our website at www.halfwit-history.com. And you can contact us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yeah, if um, anyone wants to give any suggestions for topics, um, reach out and just say hi. Or, you know, if you have any um, further insight into any topic that we've covered, you know, maybe you're an expert in, I don't know, what have we done, like the Loch Ness Monster or something, and you have more information that we might appreciate, that would be that would be cool. Yeah, and like we mentioned on um, the last episode and on our 50th episode, trying to look back, if you have history about people of color or other disenfranchised people that you want to get out there, we would love to learn about it. 
Yeah. It's just, it's very hard to find any of that information most of the time. Yeah. We're doing our best and we're going to do better. Yeah. But if you have anything to kind of guide us to a topic, that would be That would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the whole point of the show is that we want to learn and we're sharing what we've learned with you guys. Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to say thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find their link in our show notes is to their SoundCloud. They have a bunch of other songs. They're always making things. So go check them out. Yeah. And lastly, we have a Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com forward slash Halfwit History if you feel like supporting us. Yes. Please. (laughs) Fun facts? Fun facts. Do you want me to go first? Um, sure. Okay. So my fun fact is on June 17th of 1958, Things Fall Apart by Nigerian writer Chinua Achibe was published, and it is considered the most widely read book in African literature. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I remember reading that in, I want to say, high school. I don't think I've ever read it. Yeah, we, I'm going to have to add that to my list. <laughs> I had a history teacher named Mr. Buznakis. And uh, he was very big on not teaching American history. I like it. Yeah. um, I like it a lot. And I'm pretty sure that's where we read Things Fall Apart. Cool. That's really neat. Yeah. I took a... And actually, my my other uh, English teacher, um, Mr. Silk at Asavit, he also had us read Things Fall Apart. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's neat. Um, Okay. So my fun fact is... A little bit leaning more towards the other current issue. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, Pride Month? Yep. There we it's go. It's Pride Month. So in 1897 on... Oh, no. I messed up. My event was from May 15th. <laughs> oh, Kylie. <laughs> Hang on. Um, On June 20th, 1949, Lionel Richie was born. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's fun. I guess since Kylie <laughs> teased us with a Pride Month thing, uh, oh, today, so kind of interesting, is uh, Nickelodeon started posting yes. people in their shows that are um, part of the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And I saw Cora in there from The Legend of Cora. Which, I was like, if you've actually yeah. watched all of Cora, you would know. Yep. And so that was cool. Um, and then, interestingly, uh, SpongeBob essentially revealed as part of the LGBTQ community. Yeah, which like doesn't surprise me. No, and but it, it was never like I mean I did not watch very much SpongeBob, but like it was never blatant in what I saw. But like it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and I I saw some uh, comments about it when they released it, and there was a bunch of kind of like celebration because I guess a lot of the LGBTQ community had already considered SpongeBob as part of their community. So it was kind of cool. That's nice. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's been our show. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope to see you next week. Bye.